0: MCTV. We hope you enjoy the following presentation. Local productions on QTV are made possible with support from viewers like you.
1: Thank you.
2: Welcome to our innovative edition of Junior Don't Spark. This is a four-part series about life on the Mississippi River as I experienced it. I hope you'll enjoy following me on my adventure. drawn you to this kind of stories. What satisfactions I, do you get out of
3: it? I grew up in Missouri. I grew up looking at the Missouri River. I read Huck Finn when I Tom Sawyer when I was yeah, a little boy. That's why I'm here. Yeah. That's all I wanted to do was run off and be a river man. And I got the chance to do that. I've had the chance to live the dream. I love the river. I love the stories of the river. I'm a big fan of nineteenth century America. I think it was a special place, a special time. And uh, and I get to what do
2: you know about the culture? Of the, of the 19th century in this area. It How was would you explain it?
3: Genteel. Now, sure, there was slavery. That wasn't genteel. That was a condition that unfortunately was part of it. But life was genteel. The American of the 19th century was romantic. He was sentimental. He was patriotic. He was loyal and dedicated. He was just good folks. And people prided themselves in being good folks, good, solid people, good citizens, good Christians good husbands, good wives, Uh, that's what America was in the 19th century and up into the 20th century. Mid 20th century things changed, you know, we saw a change in this country in the 60s, but that's why I love the 19th century. It was a time of such energy, a melting pot, people coming from Europe, all different nations coming here and making something new happen out of this great opportunity and they built this wonderful country and uh, when you get out here and you turn off the phone and you turn off the television and you go sit in a rocking chair and you look at that river that has not changed since Mark Twain looked at it. It's easy to get back there.
2: We went up on the high deck last night yeah. and sat outside mm-hmm. with the stars.
3: Get under the stars yeah. and suddenly you're right back. You, know, you can States. hear the band. But you're a
2: serious musician. How did that enter your life?
3: Well, you know, I always grew up playing music and I was always enamored of the music of American popular music. I love it. I'm infatuated with it. And you can trace American popular music and its evolution with the evolutions in American culture in general, obviously, because it is part of American culture. So I love the music of the 1700s, the 1800s, American music, and the early 1900s. And it's fascinating for me to to draw the parallels between a, a song that was so popular in the Civil War, something like "R.L.E." Yeah. you know, which Elvis Presley would take and turn into a pop hit a hundred years later, you know, it became from Orle to Love Me Tender. And they were both wonderful songs, wonderful sentimental songs. That typified America at that time. America in the eighteen sixties, America in the nineteen fifties. You know, it was America. Could you have a song like Orle be a hit now? Probably not. That's a change in America. That's why how the music parallels too,
2: it's too sentimental. It's too
3: sentimental. Nobody wants to hear that. It's not edgy enough. It's not, you know, it might offend someone, I don't know, you know. It's just kind of who we are now. Things have changed. And I don't know if they'll change again. Yes. And let's hope that they swing back to maybe a little bit kinder time, a little kinder, friendlier way of being, I don't know. We'll see.
2: Um, But the roots of American music come from Europe and probably Africa. And Africa. But the part that comes from Europe is it the classical Europe or is it barmaid Europe? Both, it's both.
3: The music that we know as Appalachian music, well, we call roots music, they call Americana music, they call bluegrass, folk music, mountain music, whatever you want to call it, has direct ties to French. I mean, I'm sorry, to Irish and Scottish and English folk music. The same songs that they were singing in the highlands of Scotland, they were singing in the mountains of Appalachia because those people moved to the mountains of Appalachia, Uh but then they were isolated from outside. So there's great stories about musicologists going and finding these guys up in the mountains in, you know, in West Virginia singing Barbara Allen, which is, you know, this great old English folk song. And it's exactly the same Barbara Allen with the same old English Verbiage that it's had in England in the 1600s. You know, it was a direct pickup that had not changed because it stayed in the mountains and it wasn't interfered with. So there's that direct connection. So that's the folk music, the people's music. The thing to remember about classical music is when you think of Beethoven's music or you think of Mozart's music, it's wonderful music, and people loved it. But if you went to a tavern in Mozart's time, you wouldn't have heard that. The only reason that music survived is because they wrote it down. The music they were doing in the taverns, no one bothered to write down. The folk music of the 1600s or 1400s, it's gone. We don't know what it sounded like. We can guess, but nobody bothered to record it. Once you were able to record music, Thomas Edison came along It changed everything because now we know exactly what the common man listened to and sang and played, going back to the early part of the 20th century. You go back another hundred years, we have no idea really what they were doing. They have 200 years, you know, it, it gets even more vague. And so then if you go back as far as, I love to watch old movies where they have a Roman army, you know, or something, and they played this music, nobody knows what they played. They don't know what the music sounded like. They just came up with this thing, you know. We don't know. We don't know what the music was.
2: What do you think the antecedents of... Uh, uh, some of the popular music is today that isn't sentimental, that's rap and whatever, these other things. Where does that come from? Well, or what are the antecedents to that kind of uh, few notes and...
3: Well, uh, it's, it's basically, it was a reaction. Popular music, the way I look at it, basically started changing in the 1950s. Music got very, very complex and very, very good... As far as, I say good from a musician standpoint, very complex, very difficult. You have to be proficient to play the music of the 30s. If you're going to sit down and play George Gershwin, you have to be able to play. Yeah. Because it's it's complex, difficult music. The popular music even is. But in the 50s, there was this whole counterculture thing where uh, the blues music was suddenly became acceptable to the mainstream yeah. when they started to cross from race labels into what Elvis Presley started doing, yes. music that had formerly been on race records only, Pat Boone started doing, Jerry Lee Lewis, so suddenly everybody, you know, white Bobby Soxers were listening to hit this guy playing this music that normally they would not be, have bothered to listen to because you didn't listen to that. That was black blues music. There's nothing wrong with blues music, but blues is it's inherently a simple music. It's got a simple musical structure. That is its elegance. So that started sort of the dumbing down of music in America. Um, Because anybody could go and get a guitar and learn to play three chords, and suddenly you can play 90% of the songs on the radio if you can play three (laughs) chords. That started in the mid-50s, and then it kind of stayed that way. And as time went on, the music got less and less involved, you got simpler and simpler and simpler until you get into the rap era where it's basically not even about the music, it's about the lyric. And so the concept of, of patter music like that, I call patter music, we used to call those patter songs in the 20s, where it's just a whole bunch of lyrics that all rhyme like poetry. I mean, that's been around for a long time. There's, I love beat poetry, I love jazz poetry, well, that's kind of what rap is. Uh, it's a way for people to express themselves that may not necessarily be musically articulate. And they can just express themselves using whatever street lingo they choose to use. It's, it's, yes. it's exclusive. It's music that's not supposed to be for everybody. It's only supposed to be for my community. And of course, people that are like, I want to be cool. I want to be that guy. I want to be edgy because I grew up in the suburbs and I'm not edgy. So I'll do. I'll dig this. I don't know what they're talking about. But I'll, I'll, I'll absorb this. I think that's the attraction of it. And it's not, it's it's that segment of the pop, that segment of music, unfortunately, is coloring so much of what we do, but there are a lot of people I know that are great African American musicians and they detest rap music, you know, because they're musicians They realize it's not music. It's a thing and it's rhythmic and it certainly has its place, but it's not very good music. So as musicians, it's like, mm, what is this? You know, and so it, they're a little bit upset by that because, you know, they remember what about Duke Ellington? You know, yes. what about these geniuses that this young generation is just forgetting about these these men like Charlie Parker and Scott Joplin and Jolly Roll is Morton? Is there a
2: counter wave to that coming up from some other musicians where there's more <clears throat> music? County. Even in, you know, oh, yeah. where do you find <laughs> that?
3: Well, it's in the black community as well. I mean, even in African-American culture, they have this whole side track of R&B music, they call it, or rhythm and blues music, and it's great artists like Usher and and Seal and John Legend and Alicia Keys writing this wonderful jazz-based music that's difficult and complex and well done, and so it's popular too. But then you've got people within the same uh, segment of the population who don't like that music. They refuse to listen to it because it's too soft. You know, so you've got hip-hop people. They don't like this, and these people don't like this. and um, Everything's just so segmented now. That's a lot of the problem that we're faced with in music. It's so segmented. In this country, I notice this when I travel around the world. Americans are like, well, I only like country music. I only like rockabilly music. Well, I only like rap music. If you go to Europe and you play music, it doesn't matter what it is, they love it all. Classical music, hip-hop music, jazz, Dixieland, they accept all music. And New Orleanians are good that way because I think they're a little bit more like a European city. They accept almost all kinds of music. But if I went to my hometown, Kansas City, and you go into a country bar and you try and play jazz, you'd probably get thrown out. You go into a jazz place and try and play a country tune, the same thing would happen.
2: As a, as a student as well as a practitioner of music, can you help me understand the role of women? It's, it used to be the women in the 30s, 40s in, in, in the tunes were celebrated, and you're in for earn, and, and the way I hear <laughs> in rap is demeaning and insulting, and I just don't know how we got from there to here. Yeah, and I don't know
3: how to speak to that, I don't, I, that's not really my, I, I don't Feel qualified because I, I don't understand it. It's 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 kind of a demystification of the woman. It's it's it, it's it is you know. It's 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 misogynistic. Approach yeah, to women. True. I mean, it used to be like you'd have these beautiful girls in a beautiful gown, and you're singing these wonderful love songs about you're this goddess, this apple of my eye, you're the sunshine in the morning. And I'm
2: worthy, worthy. Yeah, of my, you
3: know, and God, if I could just get you to look at me, you know, all of these songs are these wonderful yearning, I love you so much songs, and then there's so much of this other genre that is anything but that. It's, it's. I'm, I'm almost astounded. I'm always astounded by what I hear, and perhaps that's what it's all about. The fact that it's just astounding
2: <laughs> <laughs> so thank you tom uh i'm i'm going to close out this session even though i just really don't want to do this so i'm going to close it out and then we're going to continue again if our if we have the ability to do things but well, we've learned a great deal from from tom and i just want to touch on a couple of highlights one is love of place, love of century, that emphasized the high side of human living, dignity, good folks, loyal husband, good worker. Um, The celebration of how technology can really be uh, used, good and bad, uh, depending on the people, but even turn the tide in the Mexican American war by using a steamboat for something they hadn't anticipated, but turned out to be terribly useful. In the music side, he has a reverence for, I would say tune, complexity, desire, um, uh, what could be called musicianship, but really it's really the celebration I think of a soul through music and it's a little bit harder to attain when you have three chords and you know that kind of covers things. So when you go about your life, see if you can have some complexity. see if you can have something that makes you good folk, something you strive to learn that has respect and admiration for other people. And remember, do something kind for someone you know and someone you don't know today and tomorrow and thereafter, it will make a difference. And thank you again for tuning in. We'll see you the very next time. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. This concludes our Mississippi adventure with Thomas Hook, who talked about music from the area and now we will continue with Scott Seeberger, who will discuss music in the local area as well as on the
1: Mississippi.
2: With me is Scott Seeberger, a local historian who has a great interest in music. So welcome, Scott.
1: So nice to be here.
2: And uh, there is um, a performer who performed on some of the riverboats who later made a, a huge career. And I wondered if you'd speak about him. His name is
1: Louis Armstrong one of the most iconic jazz performers uh, in the world, of all time. I- if you look at the river, uh, it was 4,000 miles long, there was a lot of activity on that river, and there were showboats literally created for the river. And, uh, and Louis Armstrong was one on, on one of those showboats, uh, and it came out of New Orleans. And Lur- Louis Armstrong, who uh, took a lot of personal responsibility for his life because he, he came out of uh, extreme poverty. poverty. And so he, uh, um, he was like 16 when he joined this band on the river. Many African-American artists performed on the river. And the reason was, was because they had uh, accommodations, housing, and food and bathrooms oh, provided yes. for them. And so if you were out gigging, as they used the term, going from town to town, they had to have someone special. Who could get them into room and board and get them food, it was just a, a difficult life. So many African-American artists gravitated towards the river and Louis Armstrong was one of them. He was only 16 and he said it was like going to a university uh, because the band leaders uh, required him to read music. He couldn't read music up to that point. He was a coronet player and, uh, and so that's where he learned to read music and he also learned how to read an audience because they were playing every night now um, and, and so he would go up the, the, the river and when he got to St. Louis uh, he had never seen buildings that big before that was that was such so mind, uh, mind blowing to a kid who's 16 or 17 years old and he built contacts all the way along the river. Ended up in Chicago with King Oliver Creole Band, jazz band, and his career just took off from there. He started recording and that sort of thing. But it was the river where he really built his founding success in the early days. And uh, so the river has a great history in our country. It is the fourth largest river in the The world. world. And and, and so there's so much happened, including entertainment. And those boats, now I was on one of them in Memphis which was a key port of the Mississippi River and we went on a river cruise and it was again an all to keep it authentic and a completely uh, African-American band that played there. It was a dinner music type cruise oh. and it was it was very enjoyable and when the dinner was over people listened to music for about 5-10 minutes and then they scattered other parts of the ship but I stayed and watched the band but the, and the band was excellent but it was more like a wedding band is today than anything that was authentic to the river. Um, but you can still take little cruises like that. And you went, you went on a larger one, I understand. Yes, yeah. yes.
2: But uh, talk to us some about some of the music that would have been played early on on those uh, river boats.
1: Well, a lot of it came out of New Orleans. Uh, and this was early jazz. And uh, Dixieland jazz was uh, pretty big uh, out of New Orleans. Um, it, it, jazz grew from there. You know, that was really kind of the start of jazz in America, to my knowledge. And, and that
2: was based on the blues, which was based on spirituals. Yes. And yes. yes. Uh,
1: absolutely. The first blues recording that I'm aware of was St. Louis Blues, and that was done by W.C. Handy out of Memphis. But, you know, those were all the early artists that that river played such a role in the development of, of that music. And then when you get to our area in in the Great Lakes Bay region and some of the newer artists, um, you know, uh, Louis Armstrong ended up in Chicago. Many of them ended up in Big Town. Sonny Stitt was one of the greatest saxophone players in the bebop era. He was in Saginaw. He grew up in Saginaw. He was born into a family of tremendous musical accomplishment at the university level. I believe his father taught. and. And so Sonny Stitt then started his career back in 1943. When we were talking about Armstrong, this was like 1916, 17, 18 in that period. But to go forward, 40, go forward 20, 25 years, then there's Sonny Stitt out of Saginaw, who built his career. And of course, he had to go all over the place to, to become famous, and he recorded forever. He did over 100 albums. Wow. And uh, he, he would go into Grand Rapids and say, let's, let's record an album. He'd go to Detroit, let's do an album. Go to New York, do an album. <laughs> he was forever recording albums. And I've collected some of them, but in my lifetime, I'll never get them all.
2: But what a, what a goal. What a <laughs> goal. But the role of radio was really important in the early days, wasn't it? Popularizing yes. Yes. some of these and making f- for sales.
1: Uh, but put it on, uh, it, was, uh, it was a record. I don't mean in terms of a, uh, a recording record, but it was a, we, we now had a, a marker for these recordings. And and, uh, and radio started in 1922. We're coming up on the 100th uh, centennial of radio. Now, it existed a little bit before that, but in terms of national radio, uh, it was 1922, and that allowed artists like uh, Louis Armstrong and others of his era uh, to get notice, Ethel Waters, and... Uh, what was special about
2: Louis Armstrong and his music? that
1: Louis Armstrong, I understand, was a virtuoso performer. Uh, he was not as strong on melody as some other uh, jazz trumpeters like uh, Harry James, for example. Harry James could do it all. Louis Armstrong, though, was he was full of life mm-hmm. when he was on stage. And Bob Rulong uh, who recently passed away in Mount Pleasant, he worked at CMU, tells a wonderful Louis Armstrong story. I can't tell it as well as him. But Louis, Louis Armstrong, about this time of the year, came to Central Michigan University in a storm, and his bus, they tried as hard as they could, but they got there two hours after the concert you know, ended, and Louis Armstrong was so upset about this. He felt he owed a debt to the students at CMU for his performance and he booked a job right on the spot. He said, I will be back and he Because
2: he missed the performance. Right,
1: right, and he, he was personally upset about it. And he came back and gave the concert of his life well, uh, when he did get back to Central Michigan University. Uh, I never got to see him um, perform. Uh, he, I think he lived into the early 70s. He did not live that long. Uh, no. I think he died at 68 or something. Too young.
0: Too young. (laughs) Yeah.
2: And too talented. Really. Yeah, very talented.
1: But he was a great, in addition addition to being a great musician, as you asked, he was also a great showman. He was a great performer. He was very engaging. And uh, the audience loved him.
2: And uh, you were talking before the show about the importance of vocals in the 50s. Yes.
1: Well, I thought that was the... The great decade of vocalists. Uh, before that was big band era, and the vocalists would come out for a song and then disappear behind the wings. In the nineteen fifties, uh, Mario Lanza, Doris Day. Um, oh, I mean uh, Eddie Fisher. Uh, the the groups, the Four Lads, the Four Aces. I met the Four Aces. Oh, all, did you? All yeah. original members of the Four Aces performing at Matrix Midland, I believe, in the nineteen seventies. Yes. And uh, and it was thrilling to see those groups, the four aces, four lads, and the rest, performing. They were at the end of their career, but they still gave it their best. They're all. So that, to me, that was a great decade of vocalists, including Elvis Presley, including Nat King Cole, Diana Washington. These were all tremendous performers, uh, Ella Fitzgerald. Did Elvis
2: Presley affect music so much? We went to his home, to Graceland, last summer, mm-hmm. And there's a whole building devoted to uh, people, who prominent singers, who yes. say I owe my career in essence to Elvis Presley. I would never have had the career. What did they mean? What What did well, he contribute?
1: Bruce Springsteen in uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Now we're talking about the rock and roll realm. I'm not talking about jazz and other realms. But uh, Bruce Springsteen in a speech said Elvis Presley freed the body and uh, Bob Dylan freed the mind. And... To give you an example, we're coming up on the 60th anniversary of the, the term "the day the music died" when Buddy Holly was in a terrible plane crash with yes. Big Bopper and and um, who else? Um, a couple of one or two others, and all of those artists who were from Texas. These were all Texas performers. Were affected by Elvis Presley when he came through in the Louisiana Hayride in 1955. They barnstormed all of Texas. And Buddy Holly is a good example, a brilliant musician, who was doing bluegrass music, and then he saw Elvis and said, "Oh my God!" And to use Glenn Campbell's terminology, Elvis Presley was an electrifying performer.
2: Yes. And
1: yes, and I uh, he, and so the Buddy. H- yeah, b- Buddy Holly changed on the spot, and uh, you know, b- before so many male singers would come up, there they were in their tuxes and they would sing their song and and they would do a beautiful job where Presley was moving all over the place he just moved to the music because he grew up in the uh, in a world of hearing the black spiritual spirituals and the rhythm and blues and blues music that's what he grew up with and and that's that was just innately how he acted
2: so that that
1: was his that was his impact he did change music and fashion too he had quite an impact on fashion Um,
2: he had a compelling presence
1: yeah, he came from such incredible poverty, like Louis Armstrong. Just extraordinary pro- poverty. And, uh, but he was a deeply spiritual person himself. And I think he was, he was one of these performers that just b- burned himself right out. You know, he, was, he, was, he gave so much, he performed so much, uh, there was nothing left at the end. That was kind of my take. Other people would, might disagree.
2: Oh, my goodness, what a way to end this wonderful
0: program. I'm
1: sorry we're (laughs) ending.
0: (laughs) To contact Junia, send her an email at spark at gmail.com. For more information, program schedules, and news about future guests, go to www.juniadonesthespark.com. Thank you for joining us. See you next time on Junia Dones' The Spark.
1: Local productions on QTV are made possible with support from
0: viewers like you. Thank you. MCTV.